are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crip podcast. Welcome back to Nerds from the Crypt, the podcast where we review your favorite and sometimes not so favorite horror movies. We invite indie creators to talk about their ongoing and upcoming Kickstarter campaigns. Today, we're going to be bringing on a guest who has an ongoing Kickstarter. I'm being joined here by Jay Gonzo. How are you doing today? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me, dude. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's actually the, the, the second episode we're recording today. <laughs> oh, nice. At least you had practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As far as in the industry, how do you get to this point right now? Okay. Um, well, I've been an artist my entire life, and I've got that same um, that same artist history that all comic artists have, right? We were, you know, drawing pictures in class when we should have been doing home- homework stuff. So, did that. I ended up going like to the high school of the arts, and then uh, I got out of uh, when I got out of high school. I decided I didn't like college; kind of wasn't for me. So, I went to a trade school for graphic design because I didn't want to be a starving artist, and uh, got out of there. Uh, learned to tattoo, did that for a few years until I had a kid, and then it was time to get a real job. So I dusted off my graphic design uh, portfolio. So I ended up um, the whole time always drawing comic books and like going to conventions and trying to get work and what have you. Like I really primarily considered myself to be an illustrator. So like even if I was like tattooing and even when I was like in graphic design and working in ad agencies, I was very kind of comic focused. Uh, I ended up working for Todd McFarlane for four years, which was cool in the graphic design kind of art direction capacity. Um, I did get to do a little bit of art that got published, but but not much and nothing of note, really. Um, and then uh, when I left there in 2008, uh, I was really like I had you know a lot of connections in the industry and a, and a lot of, you know, kind of um, the desire to stay within the industry. So I went out for a few years kind of, you know, shopping my stuff around trying to um, trying to get stuff published or trying to get job actually trying to be an employee at that point. I was trying to get someone to give me a job to, to draw a book for them. But in my portfolio pages were uh, this Lucha Libre comic that I had drawn. And uh, it seemed to be the thing that got me the most amount of attention. You know, like, you know, editors really kind of dug that. You know, everyone from like DC to like IDW was really kind of into it. And um, then Dark Horse was amongst the people who really liked it. And they wanted to know what was going on with this. And they kind of prompted me to do the entire first issue. They're like, hey, man, let's let's maybe do this. I want to see what a whole first issue looks like. And I think part of that was to audition to see how long it would take me from when they told me to do it to when it would be done, you know, just to see how mm-hmm. quick I was. So, you know, I, uh, I had the story, the, the original nine pages that existed, I had the story kind of loosely in my head, but then once it became a reality at dark horse, I was kind of like, well, let me figure out the whole series and what I want to do with it. And I did that and I drew the rest of the book and they ultimately passed on it. Um, they just didn't have the editorial staff to kind of manage the project. You know, they just had a lot going on and not enough people to manage it. But they really encouraged me to do it on my own. And then I kind of shopped it around to other places to see if maybe they wanted to publish it since it was kind of like fully fleshed out. And everybody dug it, but nobody really had room for it in their schedule. But everyone enc- encouraged me to print it on my own. They're like, man, just just put this out yourself, you know, and they, everyone kind of made it seem easy, you know. And uh, in my time at McFarland, I had uh, become really good friends with Larry Martyr, the guy who does Bean World. And, um, you know, he's a self-publishing guy and he was probably like the, the straw that broke the camel's back where he's like, yeah, man, just do it. You're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and so I just figured out publishing, you know, like I got into Diamond, you know, that, that was a whole process. And I you know, the first two issues were solicited through Diamond and then I wasn't in Diamond and I had to refigure out others, you know, um, distribution methods and just been chipping away at it the whole time, kind of like, you know, working in, in Illustrator, working in advertising and, you know, doing a lot of like uh, uh, graphic design work for a long time and kind of ad- advertising for a while. And then about two or three years ago, um, I just kind of walked away from advertising. I had enough illustration work to uh, to just fill my plate where I didn't have to go into agencies. I didn't have to do graphic design work or advertising work. And so I really got to put my head down and kind of finish the series out. I finally got issue six out, completed the story arc. And then, um, yeah, now that it's out and, and the world shut down, I was like, hey, maybe I should collect this and put it into a trade paperback. <laughs> so that's that's where we're at today is, is the trade paperback, which is like the whole story's done. That's the cool thing about, you know, kickstarting it is is um I'm not asking anyone to like bet on me, like to to be like, "Oh, maybe this guy finishes the book, maybe he doesn't." It's like I get to say it's like it's all done. I just have to hit, you know, take it to the printer and hit print, you know, like have someone print it out for me. Not to get too much in the story right now, but the book itself happens mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And so I really wanted it to look and feel and smell like a 60s comic book. Like I wanted it to uh to be on uncoated paper and i wanted it to like you, know, you could smell the ink on there and i wanted you to be able to feel the paper and i wanted like the art style i employ is very silver age marvel it's got like a very jack mm-hmm. kirby house style you know and then the colors are like 
you can see the color underneath the black, like the blacks aren't quite a hundred percent. And there's a lot of like picking and distressing that happens. Like the, like the, the crappy plates that they used to use back in the sixties would slip around a lot and not quite ink up all the way before they hit the, the blanket that then hit the paper. So I really tried hard to emulate this kind of sixties, you know, uh, look to it. So I, I, the trade paperback again is going to be on newsprint. It's going to be kind of slightly oversized. It's going to be seven inches by 11 inches. It's, it's, uh, um, you know, it's just slightly bigger than a regular comic book, but not, not like, you know, um, not like, what is it? Artist edition size. Like I'm not going full, you know, actual size paper or, you know, actual art size, but, um, you know, it's just like slightly bigger, a little more prestigious. And I'm, and the cool thing I'm actually doing with it is the, the book itself, when I put it out, I really wanted to do a Spanish language version of it, but it just wasn't cost effective since I was self-financing to do, mm-hmm. you know, to print it twice essentially. But with the trade paperback, what I'm doing is I'm making a flip book. So it's going to be all the English pages, you know, all, all six issues, all 172 story pages in English on one side. But then when you flip it over, it's going to be all 172 pages, the full story in Spanish on the other side. And uh, in the English version, I have a little bit of Spanish language, like it's a little Spanglishy. You know, there's the occasional Spanish phrase. So in the Spanish version, I'm going to make all of those phrases in English. So the Spanish version will have a little bit of English and the English version has a little bit of Spanish. So nice, that's nice. Yeah. And so and then I have a ton of back matter. I've got like 24 pages of like just back matter of me explaining stuff. And I've got 14 pages of pinup. I've got a forward by Evan Dorkin. So uh, when all is said and done, you end up with like more than 400 pages of comic book for in the trade paperback. Cool, man. This is it's a lot of stuff for for a Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is why my goal is what it is. Like I kind of, you know, people mm-hmm. are like I, I feel like the numbers kind of high looking, and I'm like, well, a it's not a single issue. It's it, it it's you know it's 400 pages. It's also on newsprint, which means it has to be offset lithography. Like I can't do it digitally, so that really inc- like the press setup and all of that kind of you know get the plates shot and all of that it ends up you know being a fee that I just can't get rid of. And so like my mm-hmm. break even point isn't really until I sell like 800 units, and so. But I just did the math on everything. Like I broke it down per unit what I need to make. And then I, you know, like there's the the press fees and the printing fees and the tax on that and the money that Kickstarter takes and then the money to ship it. And I just added that all up. And that's my goal number. Like I'm not, there's no, like there, you're not paying me my page rate. Or there's no money for me in there. Like it literally is just to get the book printed and just to get it out in the world. Like I, that, cause me, that's the primary goal for this was to really kind of like, like reflect kind of, you know, like next culture in a proper light and like reflect Lucha Libre, get it out in the world, like in a kind of bright, vibrant way, instead of like the, the, the punchline and the, and the joke that they seem to like to put in American movies. And uh, mm-hmm. so I really just want this to get to, to get this out. That's like my, my primary goal is just distribution, just get it in the world. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking to get rich off of this, but I, I'd like to maybe stop going broke, which is, you know, would be nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> Yeah, passion projects, right, man? Like, it's like I don't, oh, I don't yeah. mind. Uh, you know, I don't need to make money, but I, I definitely would like to stop losing it. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I said uh, with with the podcast. <laughs> yeah. The question that I like to ask our guest here on the podcast is your history with with horror. Um, I'm a big horror fan. You know, like I'm not really, you know, uh, I'm not like a horror enthusiast. Like I don't, you know, do conventions or anything. And I, I definitely horror has has gotten. Um, a lot uh, broader than, than when I was a kid. Uh, but when I was young, like I remember uh, seeing Phantasm way too young. I was like, I think I was like six or seven when that movie came out <laughs> and it just scared the bejesus out of me. But I was like really weirdly compelled by it. And then I saw like a trilogy of terror on, on reg- like on daytime Saturday, daytime TV, you know, like those, those horror flicks they would say, you know, and I grew up with, mm-hmm. uh, I grew up in LA. So I grew up with Elvira, you know, she was our local horror. Host. Oh yeah. And so I, I saw like, you know, like life force on there and, a bunch of movies like that. So I, like I dig horror and I remember, um, you know, like Friday the 13th came out when I was a kid, like the first one, you know, and that was like, that was such a, um, cultural phenomenon for my generation just to check that movie out. So I I remember, you know, pre Jason Friday the 13th movies and, um, like I really dug that. And And then VHS started happening when I was a kid, you know, like, uh, I remember the days when you used to have to rent a VCR to rent a movie, you know, because not everybody, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I, I mean, I was of that generation where we rented a VCR and we'd rent like, you know, my parents would watch like rent a movie they wanted to see. And then the kids would rent one that they wanted to. And uh, yeah, I just kind of like me and my buddy, uh, another buddy of mine would just go through. We wanted to go through the entire horror section of the video store that was like our local. This is before the days of Blockbuster. It was just everything was mom and pop video stores. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we were renting stuff like uh, um, Blood Diner and uh, I'm trying to think like the first Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just all those great like kind of ha- horror uh, canon horror movies. And so, yeah, I definitely uh, I have an affinity for it. And I uh, and I definitely, you know, I remember seeing uh, the first Halloween uh, on tape and then seeing Halloween three on uh, 
an early version of cable, which kind of, you know, you have to be a certain age to remember, but there used to be what was called uh, on TV. There was like two main kind of premium TV channels, movie channels that showed like movies and stuff. One was called select TV and the other was called on TV. And like, not everybody had it, like kind of like the richer families had that. I had a, a buddy who had uh, was a little b- better off than we were. And so they had like on TV. And I remember like staying up late and watching, you know, <laughs> watching uh, Halloween three and just being totally enamored with that movie just because it's got that weird like technology meets witchcraft kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know, like they're trying to summon demons via like technology, which I was like blown away by. I'm like, oh, you can just do that. You can just blend genres and, you know, and uh, yeah, so I, I definitely have a lot of like old school movie stuff and currently i'm kind of picky about the horror you know like i'm not really into kind of you know torture porn stuff but uh i did like you know i i liked i like the witch a lot I, like i really like the kind of slow mm-hmm. burn of that um like psychological terror and um yeah you know like i liked uh, like beyond the black rainbow which i would i would say is kind of a horror movie uh you know so that's the guy who did mandy had, had done that before that movie and and uh yeah, I mean, if it just kind of intrigues me, I'm into it. But if it looks kind of by the numbers, like I've seen zero of the paranormal activity movies. I've seen zero of the yeah, conjuring. Yeah. The conjuring universe doesn't really do anything for me. So but um, like I watched that Evil Dead remake when it came out. It was pretty like I, I thought it was good. You know, um, it's actually Sam Raimi back that one and produced that one and let someone else take the reins. Yeah, I thought it was great. Make I, it the way he wanted it. Yeah, I'm really compelled by that main actress girl. I liked her since. uh my kids took me to see like a really like a teen movie when they were when they were teenagers. Uh, they took me to see a movie that that girl, I think her name's Jane Levy. She was in um, she had like a supporting role, but she's like the best part of that whole like she's the only good actress in that whole movie. So then when I saw <laughs> she was going to be in evil, I mean, it's a, it's a just a piece of crap teen movie, you know, and then uh, like, you, you know, don't expect good acting. But but she was actually compelling. I'm like, oh, shit, they put like a good actress in this. And then um and then when that Evil Dead movie was going to happen, I'm like, oh, that's that that actor I like. I should probably check that out. And I was pretty, pretty stoked by it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I check in and out of horror these days. I usually have to kind of um, like, what is it? Cronenberg's son has that movie coming out that I, that looks interesting. And, and I'll probably check that movie out. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in and out of horror uh, now. Like definitely when I was a kid, I was I was like just every mm-hmm. horror movie that came out, like all the Friday the 13th movies, all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Like I was all about those. Um yeah, we had this really bad bootleg copy of the original uh, Nightmare on Elm Street that was like uh, the because in the bootlegging, like the colors shifted a little bit. So everything that was red became purple. <laughs> so that scene where like the blood erupts out of the bed, it was just like it looked like grape jelly flying out, you know, because it was like <laughs> super purple. But we watched that thing like no, no doubt. Like we we watched that thing every day before school. We would meet at my friend's house who had that bootleg tape and it would just be on. And we would all just like he didn't really have parents like they worked weird shifts, so they weren't there. So we would be at his house because we could like smoke in the house and like hang out and be degenerates and like watch horror movies. And then it would be time to go to school. So it's like that first night we're in Elm Street is how I started my day for probably nine months of my life in like junior high. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like, I read comics, too, when I was, you know, like a lot of uh, I, and I started reading comics when the kind of black and white boom happened. And like, you know, I start reading comics in like 85, 84 ish. And then uh, so like kind of 86 that that, you know, that the turtles have happened and everyone's putting black and white comics out. And there's a lot of really great horror anthologies that start happening kind of by by 88 89 somewhere in there um, you know it's like predates even like clive barker really getting into comics and stuff and doing his mm-hmm. nightbreed comics but i mean i read those nightbreed comics they're great I actually own original pages from the nightbreed comic oh um, nice yeah and uh what is it i uh um yeah they're great because like it's like phil hester pages and they have like zipatone on there like actual zipatone it's it's fantastic um but uh yeah there was a you know, the ones that really stick out because like honestly most of them i couldn't even name you know, like what's uh, who did them or what the name of them were. I, I know that I read uh, Scream was really big. Like I read a lot of Scream, but she's an anthology. And then I read a lot of um, Gore Shriek. Have you ever heard of Gore, Gore Shriek, the comic? I have not. Not that one. It was an anthology comic and like Steve Bissett and uh, like Greg Capullo did like his early work there. So it's it's a it's a weird kind of like there's a lot of really good talent like went through there. And so it was just really well done and varying art styles. And that was the thing that kind of as an artist that really drew me in the most was just how different some of the art styles were, you know, some were kind of crude and some were like, you know, like rendered with a lot of like hatchwork as opposed to like the feathering that like the Marvel house style would do. And it was just, it was cool to see like all of these um, different art styles. And it's really where like uh, it, it, it solidified how I draw like blood and comics, like all the blood in there is like always like solid black, right? It's like black splatters everywhere. Like it, you know, cause it's a black and white comic. 
And I just love, I remember like seeing that as a kid and just being like even more horrified by these like big black smudges of, of blood everywhere. <laughs> and I remember yeah, like, I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, Gore, Gore Shriek's Gate. I think they restarted it or tried to restart it like a few years ago, probably closer to 10 at this point. But um, yeah, man, if you look up like those Gray Capullo Gore Shriek pages, they're fantastic. I mean, and they're like varying qualities of artists, but all of them pretty good. Like you go from pretty good to, to really damn great in most of that. I remember seeing, um, and I don't know if it's Scream, but I'm pretty sure it was Gore Shriek, had a, um, had just had this real matter of fact, uh, like decapitation and, and like it had this like woman strung up and she's nude and she gets her head cut off but then he like kind of pulls it down he pulls like the skin down from her head kind of the neck stump down through like her belly and stuff and uh, there's just like i just remember like the matter of factness of this this like naked woman but like the gore was really gory but then the parts that weren't gory were like super sensual and sexual you know, like the nude body <laughs> and i just remember like how lovingly and meticulously the pubic hair had been drawn on her you know and i just like it was like, you know, the, the blood was so messy and, and gross, but then the pubic hair was like really exact, you know, like the way that it was drawn. <laughs> and I just was like completely like baffled by it. I remember like I could I, I if I could find that single page, because I remember it's like this dude with like a beard and real like scuzzy looking. And he's like, I think he has a plaid shirt on and he's standing there, I think, with like part of her body in, in his hand. He's in the foreground and then the body's in the background and she's in that kind of like, you know, that that Ed Gein contraption where her arms and legs are spread, you know. And she's missing oh, yeah. her. Yeah, she's missing her head. And she's, you know, and it's just like, and I think it's just a background. element. I mean, in my head, it's like most of the panel, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the body is just a background element. And I just completely like fixated on like how that body was rendered because the, the juxtaposition of like, you know, messy gore and like, like super like clean anatomy work was really, uh, really stuck. I mean, God, that was like 40 years ago or something like that. <laughs> so I'm still like a, the stark um, contrast. Yeah, yeah, really. One end to the other. Yeah, yeah. I, I think horror kind of works best that way, in my opinion. Like, mm -hmm. to me, horror works best when it's not, like, super creepy all the time and then just gets more creepy. You know, it, like, to me, I, I like horror movies that are, like, there's a banality to them. Like, there's, just, there's a plain, simple, like, you know, I think that's why ha Halloween works so well, the first one, mm -hmm. is you have this nice, quiet, pristine suburbia and then this, like, you know, monster shows up and just you know, wreck shop. And, and I, I think to me, horror works best when it interrupts like banality, like when it's just, you know, like when you just have typical everyday, totally plain looking scenes that then get interrupted with like this violence and horror or something terrible. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think at some point horror movies started being made by horror fans and they just like, it got darker and creepier and, you know, and everything looks like, you know, everything looks a hundred years old and it hasn't been cleaned in 80 of those years. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's all dripping with horror. It's just horror upon horror. It's like, you know, it, it just, it's too self-aware at that point and kind of, you know, uh, undermines its own effect, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's just my take, which is again, part of why I kind of like, I go in and out of horror. Like all of those conjuring movies just look like that to me. They just look like, eh, they're too, they're too horror movies. I went to the first one mm -hmm. and I fell asleep. Oh yeah. There you go. <laughs> so I'm not wrong. And then, no, no, no. <laughs> and then I, uh, what's it called? I saw the preview to, to the La Llorona one. I'm like, nope, mm -hmm. not gonna, not even gonna bother with it. Oh, yeah. Because I know these people have not, what's it yeah. called? They're not gonna represent it correctly. Yeah, to me, that like, uh, the, I was talking to my wife about that. Like, A, we knew they were gonna screw it up. Because she's also like, you know, I'm Chicano, she's half Chicano, like, or she's mm -hmm. half uh, Latina. Uh, so, to me, the, the Yorona legend uh, doesn't work well as horror in the way that they presented it because the the two monsters as a as a you know Chicano is Kukui and, and La Llorona, and the mm -hmm. you know the Yorona is like a cautionary tale. It's like don't wander too far or you'll run into her. Right? Like she doesn't come get mm -hmm. you. You have to go to her. Like Kukui is the thing that comes and gets you. Right? Like if you're bad, Kukui yeah. comes. You know, like. So I think Kukui is a better, like, you know, that next monster, if they want to go like that route, they should do a Kukui movie and not a La Llorona because you have to kind of, you know, like if, if you kind of follow the rules, she'll, she'll stay away, right? Like you have to kind of invite that trouble in or at least they need to frame the movie better. I know they're, re they're making a new one, right? Isn't like, uh, what is it? El Rey isn't, aren't they doing a, like I saw someone like, do seem like they knew what they were doing is making yeah. ones. Yeah. I think most of them, like I have okay. the, the, the Tubi um, app mm -hmm. and 
I was actually my mom wanted to see if she if we, they have that Yorona one. I'm like, oh, I guess I can, mm-hmm. I can um, stomach it if it's just to watch it with my mom. Yeah, <laughs> and when I put it in, there was a bunch of um, La Yorona movies, and I'm like, whoa, uh, did not know there was this many. So uh, I probably had to go back and take a look at some of those to see if any of the smaller indie um, what's it called films are a little bit better. Yeah, I think it's one of those things too with with like. Um, she kind of fits into that mold of like that of a popular kind of ghost that's happening, right? Or, you know, bad spirit or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of she she exists in a post ring world where that kind of like sad, tragic, you know, uh uh fig you know, main horror antagonist can exist where, you know, she she can be like, you know, just hair over her face and kind of spooky woman out in the forest looking thing. And so I think that they're just trying to, you know, basically take the the ring sensibility and, and kind of apply like you know a latinx cult to it by by saying that it's la llorona but i think they're basically just making ring movies and then calling mm-hmm. and calling it la llorona and adding i don't know yeah adding a different because uh, name to it yeah exactly like they're just they're you know they're brown washing a japanese kind of concept yeah uh, but uh, i i think the the power of that in in which i think doesn't translate well to american audience is the um is the class connotation that happens within it right like because she was in love with someone uh, above her station in life. And I don't think people mm-hmm. understand the way the caste system that existed in Mexico for hundreds upon hundreds of years, right? Like if you were like a Carillo, you could have one kind of job. And if you were a Mestizo, you could have another kind of job. And if you were an Indio, you had another type of job. Like you really like who you were defined like where you could be social mobility wise. And so for her to love someone above her station was bound to tragedy from the get go. And the fact that she thought it was her kids that were keeping her from being with him and not, just who she was that was keeping her from being him. You know, it's, it's how it's like a, it's a commentary on kind of like internalized classism, right? Like she, mm-hmm. she doesn't think that, that it's all about who she is. She thinks it's about her kids. And so she ends up killing them and, and then ultimately realizes it was never about the kids. It was about the fact that he could never be with her because she's not the right you know class as him. And, and so then she, you know, is doomed to wander the earth. And I don't, I don't know that any of that translates into American portrayals of La Llorona ever. And I think that that kind of class system, is kind of uh, an enigma to most Americans. Like they don't understand mm-hmm. like kind of class politics, you know, uh, in the way that like Mexicans or, or uh, other cultures do. So that's my take. So I think yeah, that I know. until they have like an actual, like, you know, Latinx director putting that together and Latinx writer doing those kind of movies, I think they're always going to kind of just be a Brown version of an American movie, which is, you know, it's fine. I'm sure people enjoyed it, but it's never going to be great. And it's never going to be culturally significant. It's never going to resonate in the way that it, that it could. Mm-hmm. Yep. There was a a movie a couple of years ago. Well, I say a couple of years, but it's about like a ten, maybe fifteen years now. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, a, a couple of years seems like a decade ago. Right? Like, oh, <laughs> what was that? Two years ago? Uh, oh, but no, it was man. called KM Thirty One Kilometro Treinta Uno. Okay, yeah, I didn't see. It. I think I heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's it's based on the legend of the La Llorona, but it's in Mexico City and it's a Mexican film. So they take a little bit more like care as to what they're they're talking about okay yeah i'm looking it up now yeah this looks this looks pretty cool we could maybe dig on this yeah i'm 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 waiting for a wave of mexican horror to happen because we've got a lot of great horror directors that have Mm -hmm. just kind of done like america and like kind of more universal appeal to the things that they do so i'm waiting for them to really lean into like the the traditions of like you know your cuckoos and your clarioronas well you know like Guillermo del Toro did. I would. Does not matter like where the the horror comes from? Would it be Mexico's? Just that is it's like it's Latin. Yeah. I enjoyed scary stories to tell in the dark because I grew up with them, and I knew those stories. So if they take a shot at something that, you know, the other side where my mom was telling me these stories or I was reading these in these little booklets that they still tell Mexico, I would love to watch to watch that. Yeah. So someone's going to tap into that market sooner or later. Like that's the thing about like, you know, um, Latinx culture in America is really underserved, you know, again, part of why I did my comic book and I like sooner Mm -hmm. or later, someone's going to figure out that this huge demographic of people aren't being spoken to in a language that they'll appreciate. Someone will do it right. And then everyone's going to jump on it, you know, like, Oh shit. Like, you know, like, so uh, (laughs) like, Oh, there's where the money is. We should go there. So I, I just, but the problem is, is that they, they do, um, they do it the wrong way. They just translate American stuff into Spanish and think that that's that's supposed to be for the Latinx community. And there's not like an authentic ethos that is specifically Latino underneath it. 
that supports the translation or the, that it being in, in a language they can understand. Like it, it's, mm-hmm. it's got the language right, but it doesn't have the ethos right. And I think that once somebody does that, like it's just going to click into place. It'll make all the money and then everyone else. And then we'll have like years and years of imitators and it'll get to the point where we're kind of sick of it. We're like, all right, enough with these Mexican stories now, you know. But um, but that's still like, you know, decades away. So I, I, I'm waiting for someone to get it right uh, and, 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 and reap the rewards for it. Yeah. And, and we can use that as a segue into the into the project again, because you said the reason for this was because you didn't like the way that the Lucha Libre, what's it called, uh, history or or what am, what am I, the word is that is escaping me here? I think uh, for me, it was the, the esteem for Lucha Libre gets lost in <laughs> translation, right? Like, like yeah. Lucha Libre is a, uh, you know, it, it, it's very few that you can have a, a a profession or a job that that can become a, a stand-in for the entire country, right? With the exception of like mm-hmm. maybe like samurais are to Japan, maybe Mounties are in Canada. Like lucha libre is so specifically Mexican. Like a luchador is Mexican. Like it's Mexican wrestling, right? And so, you know, like the reverence for those kind of characters, especially in Mexico, um, is just lost when it comes to America. Like it's like. They don't mm-hmm. understand the like the, the cultural significant of a mass uh, significance of a masked warrior, and they just see a dude in a mask who's like you know he's not he doesn't look like an underwear model right like he's not all abs and, and kind of, <laughs> you know like these guys are like warriors right like they're thick dudes and and so they just kind of see like kind of chunky dudes with masks on who wear like who will take who still wear the mask outside the ring, and they just kind of see like a, a silliness to it. And granted, there is a little bit of silliness to it, but but that's acknowledged, man. Like you know we we can get past that as a culture. But these guys also are, are you know, supermen who have forsaken their own Clark Kent's, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're never going to be their alter ego. It's not about their ego. It's not about who they are truly. It's only about their actions. It's only about what they do in the ring. And they're willing to, to, to pin every win, every loss, every match gets pinned to that mask. And it's a thing that can get taken away with like just unlacing the back of the mask and ripping it off, right? Like that is, you know, that's a lot to be wagered on every match. And, and well, it's um, even to the point that. If you unmask your appointment and you're disqualified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, but but you never get to be that person again, too. Like if you lose your mask in the ring mm-hmm. and, you know, guys have, you know, you know, it is also a sport where the victory, you know, at least until recently, the the wins aren't they're not scripted the way that American wrestling is. Right. Like like you go in the ring and you're, you're you know, it's not real fighting like you're you know, you're definitely not trying to hurt somebody. But if you get like the upper hand on someone, and you can put a move on them that, that leads to a submission. Like they have to kind of kayfabe and submit to it, and they lose the ring. So it is, you know, those best of three matches definitely don't have a, a predetermined winner. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's more a sport than American wrestling, and, and it's more important culturally than American wrestling. And, and I think that, um, you know, um, Americans want to kind of attach the same goofiness that they do to uh, American wrestling onto lucha libre, and then they also use it as kind of a punchline, but. Overall, I mean, like Mexican culture, when it gets portrayed in American culture, always kind of shifts toward the goofy or the dirty. Like they've they've kind of like American pop culture has created this kind of mono narrative when it comes to like what Mexico is. And they've just defined us kind of uh, exclusively by like, you know, uh, drug violence and and poverty. Right. Like, you know, they're they're obsessed mm-hmm. with our you know, they're obsessed with the Day of the Dead because it's like our goofy, you know, dead Halloween thing that we do. And they don't understand the reverence of any of it. They're just like, oh, cool, it's skeletons and flowers. But it's like, no, it's about going to the graves of your ancestors and bringing them the things that they would have enjoyed in life and realizing that you are the sum total of your ancestry brought forth. And, and you know, and eventually you will become the ancestry and, and, and your traditions mm-hmm. and will all move forward. You know, and it's only when you remember that or that, you know, it's only when you're forgotten that you're truly dead and those sorts of things. You know, they just see the, the calacas and the calaveras and the, and, the, and the marigolds and they think like, oh, that looks cool, you know, but then they. They show the Day of the Dead in American movies, and it's all sepia tone and dirty and brown, and like the, the yeah. the, the vibrance and the the celebration is lost from it. You know, it's like there's a lot of kind of like surface level engagement with Mexico, and so I I wanted to kind of get into the the ethos and the psyche of what makes Lucha Libre great, like why it's important, why it's important to feel championed, right? Like when you're a luchador fan, like you have or a lucha libre fan, you have your luchador, you have your champion, the guy you root for. And they become a proxy for you and your hopes and your dreams in the ring and like based on their their successes and losses. And it, it's, uh, you know, and those guys take it seriously, like they're there for their audiences. And, and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a in a country that has a history of uh, exploitation and strongmen, it's important to feel championed. And these guys exemplify that. And I think that 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 resonates culturally and that all gets lost whenever you see this goofy guy who's like a has a Lucha Libre mask on, you know, he's a 
ostensibly a luchador, but he's like a hitman or a detective or a bodyguard or some shit like that. And he's kind of goofy and they're kind of poking fun at him. And I just kind of, I'm just done with the Mexican culture being poked fun at, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, no. we're, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you can tell the difference in, like you said, it, they're like Superman, right? And and we'll just take that as, they're not, they're superheroes, but they're not supermen. Mm-hmm. They're just, they they just stand up for what they what they what they believe for and if you look at the movies mm-hmm. like el santo right the number one uh, luchador that's right now they, they 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 did a national uh what's it called uh, funeral for him when he passed away mm-hmm. he's yeah. yeah they buried the him in his bathroom yeah. number one yeah yeah, yeah. in his mask yeah. Yeah, he, he's the, you know, he's like the Wayne Gretzky of Lucha Libre, right? Like, if you know, because if you yeah. don't know anything about hockey, you know Wayne Gretzky, right? Yes. Or, or if you don't know anything about basketball, you know Michael Jordan. And if you don't know anything about Lucha Libre, you know who El Santo is. I mean, he transcends the Turkey. Sport. Turkey loves him. Yeah. They they had him. He came out in movies in Turkey in a language he doesn't even know. Yeah, they did that and great he's, uh, that three dev Adam movie with uh, yes, yes. With, uh, Captain America and Spider-Man. Yeah. That thing is yes. great. It is so, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you've talked about it before, but it's online. You can find it, dude. Just look up. It's like the, the number three dev, which is D E V Adam, A D A M. And I think it means like three strong men. Uh, fantastic. It, it, it is a wild ride. Check that shit out. Get on that. Getting back to El Santo mm-hmm. when he did his movies and he, they did movies where they're doing against, uh, monsters and vampires and 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 things like that and we actually did a a live show greg and i who's my my Mm co-host we did us watching the was it el santo blue demon versus uh, los los monstruos oh yeah yeah that's a good one he doesn't know spanish so i told him i'm gonna have to just you're (laughs) gonna watch it you're gonna you're gonna be able to follow along the story but you know i'll try to explain to you as we're going on so we're watching it and we're 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 doing it now. Now that we're now off um, Podbean, I have to bring it over and make it into an actual episode. But we want to keep doing that because he likes wrestling. I'm introducing him to the to the Lucha Libre movies where they're doing the horror, um, the horror aspect. You know, where they're, they're fighting the monsters, but they never take off their mask. Even they're at home resting, they're always masked. They don't have that alter ego. That is their personality that is their their what is it called their character not only in the the movie but to the fans 24 7 yeah i i've talked a lot about this uh i've talked a lot about this in in a lot of places so I'll, i'll try to give you my quick summary on that and i think that um i think the reason that that resonates a is because culturally in mesoamerica with like the aztecs and the olmecs and the toltecs we all had masked warriors right and the, mm-hmm. the importance of the mask is like when you become a Jaguar warrior and you put on the Jaguar mask, like you you begin to embody the things associated with the entity that you're trying to emulate. And people start to treat you that way. Right. They treat you like a Jaguar warrior because you're wearing the uniform. And so I think that resonates. But also identity wise and part of what I deal with in the comic is uh, in the story is, is identity versus destiny. That's just a subject that fascinates me. But identity wise, um, Latinos, specifically Mexicans, have a uh, uh, have a strained relationship with identity, right? Because we're you know we're part Spanish and we're part indigenous people, so we're we're as much con- conquistador as we are conquered, we're as much victim as we are victimizer, and so who we inherently are is complicated, right? Like for me to say I'm one thing or the other, you know, is disingenuous for me to say that like oh I'm all victim, you know, like no, well you also have the last name of the victimizer, right? Like I have the the skin color of the conquered, but the the last name of the conquistadors. And so who I intrinsically am or who I inherently am is less important because it, it's so muddled and, and conflicted like that, that I have to choose to be what I do. Like I have to be able to define my character by my actions and not who I am just in, inherently. And that's the difference between Lucha Libre and Mexican wrestling or uh, Lucha Libre and American wrestling is American wrestling is very ego driven, right? And American mythology is very ego driven. It's like one man against the world. It's the, you know, this guy who was born to be king gets to pull the sword out, right? It's all about inherent kind of ego and its imposition on the rest of the world. Whereas Mexican mythology and Mexican uh, wrestling, especially, it's about what you can do. It's about action. It's about leverage. It's about you know being dynamic and, and, and uh, agile as opposed to being strong and imposing or inherently something. And I, I think that psychologically, that's why Mexicans have resonated with the idea 
of obliterating the entire inherent ego identity of oneself, creating this facade of the luchador, and then being entirely defining what that means by their actions and their effect. You know, it, it, it takes out <clears throat> any kind of like, um, it, it obliterates the idea of a class system. And I think that that's why it resonates with, with Mexicans so much and why it's endured for so long. And again, it's why something that is like culturally resonant with the ethos of, Amer- of Mexican culture that doesn't translate kind of possibly doesn't translate to American culture in the way that it does in Mexico. And so it's part of what I was trying to be authentic with in the book and, and part of why I wanted to exemplify them as heroes there and, and, and champions. And um, yeah, man, I mean, it, it is it is deep and heartfelt in, in a way that that has never been portrayed before, or at least I hadn't seen, which is why I created the book in the manner that I did. No, and it's like you said, it's strong beautifully and you can tell you said it, you wanted it to make it look like the the old like paper mm-hmm. comic um, feel. You can tell right even even on the in the digital version, you can tell that it looks like that. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I really also wanted to have like a Latino color palette because I you know, again I was I was just sick of like sepia tone Mexico. It just bums me out every time you know you see like you cut you know any American movie that cuts to Mexico, it's like suddenly brown and yellowy, and you're like what what is this? Like the whole country isn't dirty. What do you guys like? That's such a weird fetishization with like our poverty, yeah. right? Like they just like what it is. I mean, in my opinion, I think it's Americans need to feel magnanimous. They want to feel like they've got these poor neighbors that they can help out on occasion. Right. It's like, it's so condescending, you know, in, in every instance that I see it in an American movie that I just had to obliterate it with like just bright, vibrant, shocking tones of Mexican culture. Like, look, here's pure magenta and here's chartreuse and this ice searing blue, you know, like I, it's the it's part of the vivid pageantry of Lucha Libre that I just extended into the entire world that I created. So let's talk about the story or, you know, what you feel comfortable. Okay. But, you know, we have a, a campeón, you know, the, the Lucha Libre, the luchador, who's betrayed. Right? And now he has to try to regain his prestige. Yeah, yeah. I set it up with the, you know, he's he's been champion for a while. I think I say he has like 16 or 17 title defenses. So that, that takes a while, right? That's a few years of being champion. And he's one of the best. And he has that kind of um, the security of, of righteousness where he thinks that not taking the money to take a dive, somehow his righteousness is going to protect him. And his friends are just not above taking that money. So they take they take the money and they 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 uh, betray him and unmask him in the ring. So the story itself is is a revenge story of him wanting to to get well revenge on everybody who who wronged him in that particular match. Well, yeah, exactly. So the the the. Um, you know, the head of the Rudos, obviously, because he was the one who wanted wanted him to take the the dive The you know, the and the, all of the Rudos that kind of well, I mean, primarily, he just wants to revenge on on uh, Jefe, who's the head of the Rudos, like the, the kind of manager of all the bad guys in, the, in it. And um, so he makes this this Faustian bargain, this mysterious promoter kind of rolls up and is like, hey, I've got like a new I can get you a new identity because he can never be his old identity again. Like, I'll get you a new mask and new, and then I've got some, you know, mysterious power I can give to you. And he's like, I'll take that because he just wants revenge. He's kind of like not thinking it through. And so like all comic book bargains, he just goes straight after the guy he wants revenge on. He's like, that guy, I'm going to I'm going to beat up Pefe. And so he finds out real soon that there's like strings attached that he can't just do what he wants. That now he's bound to this kind of path of uh, kind of like leveling up so that he can get to the boss level kind of, you know, path that he does so that the so the promoter can make money off of him, essentially. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if, if he just takes his power and he goes and he beats up Hefe and he gets his revenge and he feels good about it and he gets to be champion. You know, he beats up the guy who's holding the belt now and he gets to be champion. That's one match, right? Like that doesn't that doesn't do anything for the promoter. So the promoter wants him to have match after match after match so that he can continue to make money on him on his little quest of revenge, you know. And and uh, and, and Mano kind of sees through that pretty early on or is is told about it early on. And so he's trying to like somehow worm his way out of this bargain, but also still get his revenge. Like he still wants to to exact revenge on the people who. Uh, who took everything from him, you know, but he also wants to, you know, at some point he has to, to figure out if, he, you know, if he can remain the person he knows himself to be, because at some point, you know, you have to, you know, like to defeat a monster, do you have to become a monster essentially? And so he, he gets to a crossroads where he's, he's like, do I, you know, do I do the thing to win or do I do the right thing? You know, cause they're not the same in this situation. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, he, there, there's a, a little, you know, I wanted him to kind of have be a little more conflicted and, and things to be a little more nuanced for him. I also wanted the bad guys to be smart, you know, like kind of realize that he's just coming for them. And at some point they're just like, oh, yeah, he's just working his way toward us. Like we're not, you know, we're not safe here. He's just going to get strong enough. Like, you know, it, initially he, he he didn't have the ability to, to take his revenge on us, but he's going to get there and we should probably stop him while he's still weak. And so they kind of 
make plans to kind of stop him while they still have the ability and the opportunity to maybe stop him. So yeah, it, it's uh, it's basically a revenge you know plot, but there is a lot of different you know twists and turns that happen that that have to do with like internal conflict, like with him kind of making decisions about who he wants to be. There's external conflict with kind of you know the forces trying to get trying to um, you know uh, exploit him to a degree, right? Like they're trying to like every everyone's trying to get something off of him, you know so, you know even his trainer we find out has like ulterior motives for for why he's there. Like er- everybody's mm-hmm. playing everyone kind of. And it's just it's about who's going to get what they want and and also who's going to get what they need. Like, that's the important thing, I guess, is at, at some point there's what he thinks he wants and there's what he actually needs. And we kind of find out, you know, those come to kind of a conflict and he makes a decision about those, too. I'm looking at the, the cover and I see the mask. How did you come up with the the concept of the mask itself? Oh, man. So um, so I, I, I love the symbol of the hand with the eye in it, right? Like the, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a cross-cultural symbol. So I, I'm enamored with, with symbols that, that you see everywhere, right? There's a lot of like a circle with the dot in the center is a symbol you see everywhere. Um, you know, crosses turn up, stars turn up everywhere. Uh, and then a hand with an eye in it is one of those symbols that you see everywhere from ancient Greece to like Mesoamerica to, to the Pacific islands. Like it's just, it's everywhere. And, and um, it tends to be a symbol of enlightenment, right? At least with the eye on the palm of the hand, it, it does. And, and so I wanted him to put on this symbol of enlightenment, which is ironic, right? Because when he, when he starts off his quest, he's super not enlightened. Like, he doesn't know anything. Like, he literally has to have his own, exp- his own powers explained to him. Like, he's not enlightened. <laughs> but over the course of the comic, like, you see him kind of becoming more and more enlightened and kind of understanding you know, what's going on and, and, and beyond the enlightenment, you know, like, cause the, the mask itself kind of sits where his third eye would be, which is also a, a symbol of enlightenment. But beyond that, like it's literally, uh, it's a hand, right? So the, his name is La Mano del Destino. So it, it is a hand. And to me, the hand kind of symbolizes action and exemplifies that kind of principle I was talking about before, where he's defined by his actions and not what, you know, and, and not what he thinks or what he says or what he, you know, all of our senses are kind of there to kind of take in information. Like our hands are where we put back into the world. And, and putting back into the world is how he's going to completely define who he is. It's by action and not by thought or by by word, but by deed. And so I wanted that to be there, again, as a symbol that's kind of there, that it doesn't realize is important until kind of partway through it. There's also the bit where like his hand actually gets injured as part of like part of his backstory. There's a hand injury that's very important to the, who he is and, and what has gone on that made him want to be a luchador, which has ultimately led him to this point in the story. And so... You know, the, the hand with the eye, the enlightenment in the hand kind of juxtaposes the injury to the hand that he had earlier in his life. And and uh, so, yeah, I, I just I wanted the I knew I wanted the hand and the eye to be there. And and, um, and because in as much as his name is La Mano del Destino and in as much as his name is the hand of destiny, the story is also about the hand of destiny at work in his life. Right. It, it kind of has a double meaning that way. And so I also, you know, so I put the hand there. Uh, I really wanted like, you know, like um, kind of a traditional luchador mask with like the kind of the ring of alternating or, or contrasting color around the eyes and mouth, you know, like that kind of mm-hmm. traditional mask. And I wanted it to have like that kind of like jagged uh, kind of starbursty feel to it just as this kind of eruption of identity. Um, and uh, and then the, the, the two kind of white stripes that kind of like they kind of come together over the third eye and then proceed into one. I kind of wanted like the the two sides of him, you know, the kind of the boy he was and the man he wants to be to kind of like come together in the enlightenment and then continue on over the back of his head. And it just, you know, it, it was, it was notions that I ended up doing a bunch of drawings. They're in the book. Like you can see a couple of different, like, you know, that's only like that. I think it's only like four or five of like maybe the 80 of those that I drew, you know, the, the hand was the easy part. And then everything else was like kind of making it come together was, uh, was a little more uh, tricky, you know, kind of like, I guess just finalizing it. Like I kind of always knew what I wanted it to be. It's just the finalizing exactly like how it's going to look where I can draw it over and over again. It took a little bit of process, but you know, my, my favorite color is kind of like that, that, that bright chartreuse green that's in there. So I wanted to make sure it had that in there, that magenta, that, that, that the hand is kind of contrast that beautifully. And then that, that dark green, uh, just complements everything. So well, it's, it's like my secret weapon when I'm, uh, when I'm coloring the book, like it, it unifies kind of everything. Cause it works well against, you know, like blues and kind of cool colors. And it also really sets off like, neutral colors and that it also works great and complement with kind of like more organic greens and stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I wanted it to be part of the mask as well because that, that dark teal ends up everywhere in the book. It shades everything. And so it's also part of his mask. So I wanted the, the kind of visual notion that he permeates the entire world that he's in with doing that. The, 
color palette you were talking about earlier. I definitely see the colors from Mexico that you were talking about. These are the different colors that you would see in the in the houses for the different rooms. Uh, just popping, they just and every cover has that focus of that and that color is the plays very big part of it. Yeah, man, I really wanted that like bright because you know when I think of Mexico, when I think of like you know Latin culture, especially like. Like my Nana's house was like that bright blue that's on the cover to issue one, like that background. Like my Nana's house was that color, like like just bright ass blue like that. And it's like, and then no walls in in my house, in my Nana's house, is my parents' house. Like no wall is white. Like we don't have white walls. It's just not how we work, right? It's yeah. all like you know bright pinks and robinson blue and chartreuse and even like magentas and like full red rooms and stuff. And like I just grew up in a culture where like there's a bright vibrance. Like I don't, I didn't grow up around neutral tones. And then to kind of like, as I got older and would go to like friends' houses and stuff, you'd always kind of like, you know, and I was like, wow, did you guys like just move in? Are you painting? Like what's going on here? And so, uh, yeah, again, like I just get bummed out when I see like all of that get like sepia toned and like dirty down whenever you see it in, a, in an American movie. So I just was like, I'm just going to crank it up. And it, it's it's the colors of Lucha Libre too. Like those guys have like sparkly, glittery, bright, you know, gloriously, you know, I mean, even a guy like La Parca, who's primarily black and white, the red that's in his costume is like a super pure bright red, right? You know? So yeah, man, I mean, like we're just a bright culture, you know, we like, we love those, those tones. And, and I really just wanted to exemplify those as much as I could throughout the book and, and definitely let people know this is kind of a curated reality, right? It, you know, mostly because of, of how few of those I use, right? There's only uh, 16 colors in the entire book, right? And then three of them only get used on the mono. Like whenever you see him like that, that chartreuse, that magenta and, um, that uh that oh, i'm trying to think and that blue that that robin's egg blue are only ever used on him like you never see them on another person so i i that limits me to like nine colors for the rest of the book which allows me to kind of um be smart about how i use them but also allows me to let people know that this is a constructed reality right like i'm not trying to be naturalistic i'm not trying to make it look like reality so just kind of let those notions go and just enjoy the story right like it's a nice kind of like it's a shorthand for uh confessing my artifice like this is made up so don't don't worry about how real it is just go with it you know and, and i think once you buy into the constructed reality of it the, the more you'll enjoy the story let's talk about the, the the rewards that the backers can get one of the the pluses on kickstarter is that you're not only getting the book mm -hmm. but you're also getting these little extras depending on the tier you get what, what can you tell us about the different tiers you have available for this campaign i i realized that uh 400 pages is a lot <laughs> is a lot right so <laughs> just to have as a book so I wanted to offer it digitally to people, especially, uh, so I should say, I can't ship this internationally. I, I looked in international shipping and just the state of the post office right now and the state of the world right now, it's really iffy and it's kind of pricey, you know? So it's like, you know, it's going to cost like $40 to send it to Canada. And it's like for $40 shipping for a $35 book just seemed a little, you know, like backwards to me. So like just for the time being, I just can't do any international stuff. It has to be US only. So, but if you live in Canada, if you live in, in the UK, if you live anywhere in the world, you can get a PDF sent to you. So it, it allowed people to A, get it on time and then B, get it in a timely fashion uh, and then also to have the book. So you can, for 15 bucks, you can just get the, the PDF of it and the PDF is included in every other tier. So if you, you know, no matter what you buy in, you will have an electronic version. So if, yeah, if you don't want to like bring your 400 page version out to the table, you know, out to the out to your patio to read and you just want to read it on your ipad like you know it's an electronic version will be available to everybody and so um and then there's the book tier so the book itself is 35 bucks which again like i said man i just did the math on everything that's what i i need to sell 800 at 35 to, to make my money back I, I you know for 400 pages i maybe could have charged a little more so that i could get to my goal a little quicker um but uh I just wanted to make it affordable for everybody you know 35 didn't seem like a lot of money for 400 pages so so thirty five bucks gets you uh, get you the book and a PDF, and then uh, and I'm I'm, a, I'm just gonna be a little hazy on the rest of these prices because I don't know them all by heart. But uh, so one of the things that I'll do to warm up in the beginning of the day is I'll do these dumb little like UPA style doodles, and it's just an old art style from the '60s and '50s. It's very simple geometric uh, cartoon style that in the comic book because they're famous in that world, the luchadors are so famous in that world. They um they have a cartoon about them, and so within the comic book you'll see little glimpses of the cartoon. It's just real simple kind of geometric style that you see. And it's also important uh, in the last issue, like that kind of style. So I do other superheroes and stuff like that in that style, just kind of daily doodles just to kind of warm my hand up. And uh, typically I'll just put them all in an envelope and sell them at conventions. But since conventions aren't happening right now, 
I'm offering a, a doodle of whatever hero you want as as one of the reward tiers. So you can get, you know, you get the comic, you get or so you get the book, you get the PDF, and then you get a doodle with it. And that one's a little limited because I have to draw them and I don't want people waiting like years and years for me to like get to their doodle. Like I sell 500 of them. And I'm like, you know, like day 20 in a row of me doing like 10 doodles is probably going to break me. So I'm only uh, I'm only allowing that, I think, 100, right? Or 50, 50 maybe. So, yeah, uh, there's a limited number of the doodle packet. And there's other ones that have doodles with them, too. And then there's a um, there's a tier where you can get the uh, the book, the PDF, a doodle. And then a set of the original floppy issues, right? Because I did, I still have the issues, and those will be signed. So signed set of, of issues. Um, there's a there's a reward tier that has a, a set of prints that I'm doing. And again, I'm not doing a big, large poster print just because of the state of the post office right now. Like getting anything shipped is kind of iffy. I'm trying to make everything that I can fit in one envelope and ship it out, so I don't have to do like a poster tube and an envelope and all that. And so I'm doing these like uh, Papel Picado, uh, you know, which are the, the Mexican cut paper decorations that you'll see at like weddings and quinceaneras and stuff. Um, I'm doing a, a, a Lucha Libre version of those. One has La Mano, one has um, Calavera, the main bad guy. And then one has a, uh, a like an angel and a demon and uh, a little luchadors above it. Uh, so I'm doing a set of those. And those are hand silk screened, uh, limited edition. So whoever orders it, this is the only edition I'm ever doing of that. So you get three prints in the comic. The, or sorry, three prints, the the book and the PDF and a doodle maybe is one of those. And then there's one that has uh, there's like a big package that has like a doodle or I'm sorry, it has the PDF. It has the the big book. It has uh, a set of comics. It has a uh, a doodle. It has the prints. And that's all like one the, the probably the one of the biggest sets that I have. And then the biggest set I have right now is uh, all of that. So <laughs> let's see if I can do this again. It's got the PDF. It's got the book. It's got a set of the comics. It has a doodle. It has the print set. And it also has a ring quality by a legit mask maker to the stars guy version of the La Mano del Destino mask. This is handmade, custom La Mano del Destino. Like if, if La Mano del Destino was to get in the ring tomorrow with like in an actual match, this is the mask that he would wear. It's like that quality. These aren't those souvenir quality cheapy masks. This is like you know, it's lined. It has the outer color. It's it's got the um the prismatic hand on it and stuff. Like it is, it's beautiful. You can check it out on the Kickstarter. You can check out the, the photos of it. Yeah, it it is a thing of beauty. What's that? The laces. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like oh man, it's like yeah. It's got like you know, it doesn't have like the four lace holes that most like which like the cheap souvenir ones have. It has like really nice like you know, I think it's got six or seven of them. It's uh yeah, it, it is beautiful. So so that's the top, the top tier. And the top tier is like 200 bucks. So you get the mask, which is a handmade custom mask. You, know, you get the you get the PDF, you get the book, you get the set of comics, you get the the set of prints and you get a doodle for for 200 bucks. So I mean, that's where I'm topping out right now. Um I'm I've been told I should do some other kind of higher tier rewards. So I think next week I'm going to add like another even higher tier reward that has like maybe something a little more kind of handcrafted in it as well so i i uh, i'm just hearing uh, i'm sorry toying with the the uh the feasibility of getting that done and how i want to get that out in the world uh and then i've also been told by my mask maker because we've sold all 20 of the the limited version of that mask i've been told by my mask maker he can make more than the 20 so i'm gonna i'm gonna open another tier up that also has those quality masks in it uh next week as well nice that's that's a good looking mask (laughs) dude it it i kind of got weepy when it showed up because i sent the guy like my drawings and we we went back and forth a bit and then he's like you know he emailed me he's like hey it's in the mail man he's like i can't wait for you to see this and then when it it showed up like like he was super proud of it and then when it showed up and i like i got to hold it in my hands i was just like i I maybe got a little tear like somehow made this character i created it made him a little more real in my life you know it looks it looks pretty cool i I don't think I would ever be able to afford that, but <laughs> it's something that I would definitely would want. Yeah. It looks pretty cool. I've never had a, I've always had those little, those, uh, like the spandex yeah, uh, yeah. masks. The souvenir ones. Yeah. Those. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, never been able to afford one of these, these nice ones. <laughs> Neither, honestly, this is my first really nice one. Like I've, I've seen other kind of ring quality masks before, but I've never, yeah, they're always pricier than I wanted you to pay, but yeah, just getting this one made is, is my kind of first foray, foray into it. And uh, and again, it's not for everybody, you know. Like I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Like I, and that's my thing too. It's like I, I'm very upfront about like my comic is very niche, right? Like it's, it's like a bilingual scam, you know, Spanish comic book or Spanish English comic book. It's uh, it's about lucha libre. I mean, and it is, it is, it's every age too. Like any anyone can enjoy it. It's it's not 
there's no real violence in it. Like, you know, there's no gore or anything. Like, people fight, but it's not like it's more of an action action adventure story that is like mm-hmm. like you know any kind of like you know violent thing. So I wanted to make something like when I started doing it, I wanted to make something my kids could read. So I made this comic, but um. Yeah, you know, so it's it's accessible to everyone, but it's not everyone's cup of tea, you know, and I get that. So my my, you know, part of the reason I'm running the campaign for 60 days is I know there's an audience for it. So and I and I know I have to go to them because uh, the direct market comic books have kind of underserved Latinx people for so long. I don't know that their their ears are out for the messaging anymore. Like, you know, I, I don't know even if, you know, even if I got on like all the big comic book sites and everyone knew about it in the comic book world that's not necessarily the audience I want. I think the people I want aren't even listening to that, that mainstream kind of comics, you know, media machine, which is why I'm doing things like, you know, podcasts and stuff. And, and things that I think that are things I think will, will allow an audience that like is into what I'm doing to know about it. And, and like I said, man, I, I try to keep the price low so everyone can participate at some level to kind of just check it out. Cause to me, just getting, getting it to people is the most important thing. So uh, so yeah, man. If like you know, if it's not your thing, but you know someone who's into wrestling, if you know someone who's into lucha libre, if you know someone who's like a Latinx who like who likes comics but feels like you know they they've never had a comic kind of specifically for them, like just just share the Kickstarter with them. Like you don't, I don't, I don't need you to buy if you, if it's not for you, but definitely please just pass it on to the people who you think might enjoy it. First of all, the art looks beautiful, which is why I wanted to get you on. But main reason is because I hardly ever get to see something that reflects. Re- reflects um, my culture. This is definitely something that I've been sharing on Facebook. Um, once this is out, I'm definitely going to be sharing everything on Twitter, Instagram, and all that because I want people to get into it. I know people who are into the wrestling, the American wrestling, who would still love this stuff because they are so into wrestling that they really like even the the luchador style stuff. So. No, I, th- I think once more people start getting their eyes on it, they're going to be wanting to share it and, and get, get make sure that the word gets out. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I hope so. Like, I, it's been my experience of that. You know, it's like if, if you're into this sort of thing and it catches your eye, like you're, you're pretty much sold. Right. Like it's like, oh, I dig this, you know, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was important to me that the the Latin culture was correct. And it was important to me that the wrestling was correct. And it was important to me that like, you know that all the, the elements that I have in there, like the kind of silver age storytelling is kind of, it was correct. Like I really wanted to be, I didn't want to get any grief from anybody essentially. You know what I mean? I didn't want like, like Latinos to go like, ah, it's not really how it is. Or I didn't want wrestling fans to be like, ah, it's not really how, and like, I really, I wanted to make sure it was authentic as possible. So I think that, yeah, like you said, man, people who are into like wrestling, people who are into like Latin culture, like this is totally for them. Um, I, I just, I just hope there's enough of them to support the Kickstarter, you know? So, and I really appreciate you getting the word out too. Cause that's like, that's all I can really do is kind of like, let people know that it exists. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not really like a hard sell guy. I'm not gonna be like, Oh man, you need this in your life. You know, like, I'm just, I can't be that guy, but I can tell you that like, this is, you know, this is made from the heart. And if you check it out, you'll see the love that's in there. Like you'll, you'll see like how much I love everything that's in this book. And, and, uh, and yeah, man, I, I hope people will dig it. This isn't just a a ca- crash. Uh, I could keep saying the wrong word. Cash grab. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I mean, um, if I wanted to make money, I wouldn't have gotten into comic books. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you'd be well. I guess you might not be surprised, but how many times I hear that? <laughs> oh yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, it's it's for sure not about the money. I mean, it is just about the love, man, for sure. And I'm glad. And, I, and honestly, like you know, you've read it, like you feel it in there, right? Like you can sense that I love what I'm doing. No, no, yeah, definitely. And like I said before, the the whole, just the look of it, very much, other than it's in color, it reminds me of the the old comics that I used to to read from Mexico. The, I don't know if you ever, they kind of look like this. They're not really comic books. They were actually little booklets. um, And they were black and white, and they had the luchadors on them. Later on, they did come out in color. Yeah, the only comics I I have a lot of the old '60s uh, El Santo comics, the ones that Jorge Cruz did in the '60s, and they're uh, they're almost fumetti. Like you know, the Italians do fumetti, which is the photograph comics. But what they would do is they would get like like the wrestlers, like El Santo or Mascaras or Blue Demon, would come in and they would take like a ton of photographs, right? Like in all these different positions where they're like they're you know they're standing, they're fighting, they're crouching, whatever. Take all these photographs and then they would just go home, and then the artist would take those photographs. And they would find a good position where like, uh, so like in Fumetti, they would stage the, the scene. They'd be like, oh, I need a guy here, a girl here. They would, then they would take a photo of the scene then put the, 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 um, the word balloons in there in Mexico. They would just 
take the photo of like Lamano or I'm sorry, take the photo of El Santo like punching and they would cut him out and they would draw in the background of him fighting like a monster or, you know, whatever or in space or what have you. And so it's kind of like this weird hybrid between Fumetti and traditional comics. And they were made in black and white. And they're like, they're almost kind of, they're a little more square than an American comic. But the cool thing was in Mexico, at least back in the 60s, like when you bought a comic book, you would buy it for cover price. And then you could bring it back after you read it and get a credit for another comic book. And then someone could buy the used version for uh, for less than cover price, but then they could bring it back. And so all of these comics would like go through like 10 to 15 people's hands, right? Like getting, you know, almost like a library book at that point where people would like, you know, get it, read it, bring it back. And so almost none of them exist anymore because they're so flimsy. They're so well loved, but I've got a few of those and they're in black and white as well too. So, um, but, uh, but they're that great kind of black and white Fumetti illustration hybrid, which is fantastic. The ones that were very popular when I would go to Mexico to visit my grandparents were the, um, what's the name? Oh yeah. Uh, The gold mask with the heart on it. Yep. Yep. And then he had a big broad chest with a, a, like a, it was like a muscle shirt, but he had like big gold eyes on it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So those are the ones that that I would read, but those were also black and white. The cover was in color, but the it's not even black and white. It was like uh, like a beige color, and then the 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 lines were like a, like they look like purplish, bluish lines. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Think- those those are my favorite. I think that might be the uh, just a printing process. I think they were going for black and white, but I think that's just what it ended up being. Yeah, it was it was not the the best of quality paper. It just yeah. that's what it came out. I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, I've seen those, and those those are on my list of like uh, things I want to get. You know, like the um, those and like the uh, Kaliman comics, or like another one that I want to like oh, yeah. write down. Yeah, Kaliman's huge. My in mom, my mom tells me about Kaliman. Yeah, yeah, he um, was like their Superman for a long time. <laughs> yeah. There's and a thing that I, I think that he was I, supposed to be like a Middle Eastern person, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a weird kind of like uh, exotifying, you know, uh, uh, for you know, ancient lands kind of thing. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not the most culturally sensitive thing in in the world, <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely cool. Um, and it, and it's culturally, you know, like it, it's it's uh, resonant with you know. I mean, it's it's important to our culture, but maybe not. You know, it, it's not as bad as like you know, like a minstrel show, but it definitely isn't isn't great you know it's not woke that's for mm-hmm. sure yeah yeah I, I mean back back then they were what's it called showing you the the like you said the exotic lands and stuff and so definitely they were very stereotypical they weren't being mean about it yeah they yeah they were like yeah they weren't they they were yeah, i'm trying to think of the, the right way yeah they weren't demeaning but they definitely were otherizing in a way that that is mm-hmm. maybe problematic and but you know it, it started like in the, the 50s, right? Isn't Kaliman from the 50s, if I'm not mistaken? I think it's a little bit older than that. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, uh, it's like looking at old Will Eisner cartoons or you know, comics. You know, it's like it's, some of this is problematic for sure. You know, <laughs> even Tintin, did, you know, has has a, you know, some questionable issues. So, um, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> we went off on a tangent. And now I'm all just thinking about Kal- like Kaliman. Like it, we, we, were t- we were talking about movies like Kaliman something like if there was a if there was a good way to do that without being so otherizing. I think that that could be a really cool movie uh, or an American kind of prop. Like if someone like if Del Toro took on Kaliman and did something about that, like I think that could be cool, but that's a landmine or that's a minefield of like negotiating kind of cultural appropriations that, yeah. that maybe isn't worth it, you know, but I think if it was done right, it could be very cool. But uh, is there anything else that we are missing on the Kickstarter project? Uh, no, no, man. Like, and again, uh, nah, like I, I'm trying to be accommodating. So look, if you get on there and there's some, you have it, you know, message me if you have any questions, uh, check the video out. Cause I do answer a lot of questions in the video about what kind of, you know, uh, histories and what have you and like what you get. Um, and then, um, yeah, man, I mean, if, if you guys have suggestions or if, if anyone's looking for anything, like feel free to message me, I'm trying to make everything work for as many people as I possibly can. Uh, and I just want to say too, like given the state of the world, some stuff just isn't feasible right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do what I can with with what i have right now in this moment in time um but again i'm I'm not i'm not trying to price gouge anybody i'm not trying to make any money off of this i'm just trying to get it out so i i really would just appreciate any kind of support i could but for sure check out the um check out the video that's on the kickstarter because i do answer a lot there and then also at the very end of the video has all of like my social media stuff so people can just 
uh, follow me on whatever social media they they personally enjoy best. And and then I, I try to answer all of my questions and messages. So Lanza, uh, I want to thank you very much for joining me and taking the time to to come on the podcast to talk about this project. You're more than welcomed to come back onto the podcast, talk about anything else in the future, anything that you have, anything going on. Or if you know anybody who would like to get the word out, I'll be more than happy to to have them on the on the podcast. All right, cool, man. Yeah, dude, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you with all your help. And yeah, man, if I if I know anyone who's 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 uh, who's right for you, I will definitely make a recommend or an introduction. So yeah, count on that. So if you guys want to go ahead and reach out or go to the Kickstarter and, and back it, you'll be able to go through it from the from our website, from the Spoilerverse website, um, or even from the links that we send out on on social media. You'll be able to get to the to the Kickstarter page page. So um, with that being said, I want to go ahead and once again, thank uh, thank you, Gonzo, for, for joining us. And thank you all for joining us here on this episode of Nerds and Nerds. Are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crypt Podcast.